It's the 11 Dubcast. It's festival time. Yay! Yay! Yay, eating salsa and wearing sombreros, ironically, and, and appropriating Mexican culture. Yay! Um, I'm Johnny Gitter. I am a very under-the-weather Michael Citro. Yeah, I'm sorry, Michael. It, it's it, The tables have turned, yeah. and I am the one who is healthy, and you are the one who is sick. That is, that is the way it will always be from now on. You are the yin to my yang, Johnny. Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, usually I'm pretty sick, and also... It's it's kind of weird that I have not gotten sick, and I, I know I'm, you know, famous last words here, but, uh, you know, because the weather's been so weird, it was like in the 60s and low 70s the past couple of days, and now it's starting to dip back into the 30s and 20s, so <laughs> Ohio mm-hmm. and El Nino are going to catch up with me, so I'm not going to get too cocky about it okay. quite yet. But we have a lot to talk about. We we did not have a dubcast last week because of the holiday. Yeah, I know. I, I wanted to have one last week after that Kentucky I know. game. I know, and that's the first thing that we're going to talk about, and then we're going to get into the Fiesta Bowl with Matt Finkus and a very special guest, uh, Jack Park, who's going to tell us all about the history of Ohio State and Notre Dame. Um, but let's start off with that ridiculous one against Kentucky. On a scale of 1 to, I don't know, 11 billion, how likely did you think that <laughs> this was going to happen, that they were going to pull off this upset? One meaning it was actually going to happen 100%. Eleventy billion meaning there was no way in hell this was ever going to happen, and you just had it on because you wanted something in the background. Uh, Eleventy billion and one. Um, yeah, it was. Here's here's how bad I thought it was going to be. I did not start watching till halftime. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> what I, a bad fake Buckeye. I I saw the the people on Twitter talking about it, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, okay, we're still leading. Whatever. And yeah. then at halftime, I went, how are they going right. to Yeah, I wanted to see how this devastating loss was going to happen. Uh-huh. So I'm like, all right, okay, I'll watch the second half. And, you know, I just kept waiting for it. And then they started to make that run. And I said, oh, God, here we And then uh, Ohio State, like, blew a layup. And uh-huh. uh, and then, you know, they came down and hit a three or something. I was like, oh, Jesus, God, this is going to be brutal. And then the. You know, then the free throws, we started missing free throws. And I'm like, yeah, how is this going to finally implode? And then all of a sudden I look up and they had a seven point lead again. I was like, wow. And there's like 40 seconds left. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to tell you something like I, you know, you have that same kind of sinking gut feeling, right? Like when you know a team is not performing in the way they need to to beat a really, a really a better team. Uh-huh. And they started to play that way, especially towards the middle and end of the second half. But I think one thing that's overlooked in that game is that Kentucky wasn't playing all that great either. They had the, you know, they were the beneficiary of one player just going completely insane. Oh, he was bonkers. He was absolutely yeah, it's bonkers. Like what? He scored like 34 points, I think. He wasn't 30. even looking, Johnny. He was just, oh, I have the ball at half court. <laughs> Swish. Right. You know, like right. he could have literally like hiked it with a blindfold on, and it would have gone in. Yeah. And, and so Kentucky was the beneficiary of that, which is nice. But aside from that, I mean, they really weren't they weren't doing what they needed to do. And, again, I don't want to take away from what Ohio State did, because nobody, nobody thought that that would be a close game, much less, you know, Ohio State would be able to steal one there. But, Again, this I don't think it was the crazy, crazy upset that maybe some people would think, simply because Kentucky wasn't playing their game either. And one thing that's a huge difference maker, I mean, it's just it's the fact that Ohio State 
has dudes who can bang in the paint. You know what I mean? Like, there's actually a defensive presence there that opens up so many other things that the defense can do instead of worrying about constantly just getting beaten inside. It changes the dynamic of the team. No, they're not the best team in the world talent-wise, but that was a very complete win. I don't think anybody had more than 14 points in that game. And that's just a cool thing to watch. It's like a really, really fun thing to see, especially out of a young team like that. Like, that's... That's a defining win in my What opinion. I saw from that team was desire that I haven't seen in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, diving on the floor. Uh, the one play where, uh, you know, the defining play of the second half where they got the ball back on the long rebound and then Ohio State's player dove in there and took the ball away right. and then we had a breakaway. Um, just there was a lot of desire there. They were physical. They wanted it. And, you know, I mean, we've had a mirror in the pivot for the last four years and we haven't seen that desire <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's kind of what I'm talking about. So, you know, it was a really entertaining game. It was a lot of fun. It it probably doesn't mean a whole lot for March, but it still is one of those things that you go, okay. But it maybe was I'm actually fun. It was fun. Game. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun to be an Ohio State basketball fan for the, right. really for the first time this year, right? And yeah. this is a team that lost at UConn by 20, and so it came <laughs> completely out of nowhere, and it was really a lot of fun. Uh, even the, they lost to Louisiana Tech. Even, I mean, yeah, I know. Even through the nail biting parts of the second half, it was still like, oh my god, they they could actually do this thing, and they did. And it was, it was a, a really satisfying win. And it's it it you're right. It probably at the end of the season doesn't mean much, but if the team is on the bubble, it is the kind of win that could tip that in their favor. Yeah, and and the other thing that I want to point out about that game, real quick, before we move on to the Fiesta Bowl, which we will cover, but. One of the other things that I want to point out is that um, the team doesn't – they still don't look like they've completely gelled yet. So what I like about that, what I think is interesting about that at least, is that you can see the individual talent of players just trying to create for themselves sometimes because they don't really have a full rhythm yet. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at that and you're like, all right, well, I'm looking at these dudes. I'm looking at you know like Daniel Giddens. They're like, okay, he's not doing a ton, but there's still – there's something there. Or you look like, I don't know, you look at Thompson where Trevor Thompson had five blocks in that game. You're like, okay, yeah. like the, the individual effort in certain areas of the game makes you go, okay, once this team starts playing as a unit, right? And they and that was a great team win. But once they actually start playing off of each other and recognizing each other's strengths and they get used to each other uh, as, as basketball players, that's going to be a very, very tough team to deal with because – that reminds me of what, like, the Tom Izzo teams look like, right? Yeah. Like, where, again, you don't have these individual amazing stars, but you have a team that just plays off each other very, very, very well. If Thad Mata can develop that, that's that's going to look really good in the next couple of years. I'm really excited about that. And the other great thing is you probably don't have, I mean, the attrition is going to be essentially zero, Yeah. right? This is one of the least experienced teams in the entire <laughs> college basketball world. I think I think Pomeroy or someone had them at, like, next to last or third to last in terms of total game experience. Um, so, it, you know, I, I'm excited about it. It's not just because they, they beat Kentucky, but I just think overall they appear to be gelling. And that that's going to make uh, the end of the football season much more bearable yeah. for both me and you. Yeah. <laughs> because we're going to have to talk about them on a weekly basis. <laughs> yeah, you and I said all along that we thought this was a team that, A, we want to see how they develop 
and we're seeing that right. and we're starting to see that. We also said that this is a team that's probably going to lose some games. It should win and win a few that they, they should lose. And that is happening yeah. too. So um, right. we're getting kind of what we thought we would get. And um, it would be nice to see, you know, so, some of the knock on the coaching staff the last few years has been lack of development of players. And it would be nice to see this team develop uh, as a Tom Izzo team develops so where you have a kid uh, like I remember when nobody thought Travis Trice was very good. And, <laughs> right. and Denzel Washington a couple of years ago was, or Denzel Valentine wasn't, uh, wasn't what he is now. Right. Uh, so, you know, Izzo does get the most out of his players talent. It would be nice to see Ohio state staff be able to do that as well and, and develop these kids. Cause they are talented. Yeah. And, and hopefully we continue to see that talent, especially as they go into big 10 season, which is really going to be the determinant of, of how, close they can gel you know like how well they can gel because that's going to be a rough stretch uh particularly at the end of it because they've, they've got to play some really tough teams yeah um okay so let's let's talk about the festival let's actually get into it okay this is i'll talk sixth... about it with you okay <laughs> twist to my arm as long as you take uh, out that part where i said denzel washington <laughs> yeah Den- well denzel washington has also developed into a, a fine interesting i'm not giving izzo any credit for that though <laughs> no, Denzel Washington is on his own. Um, so, <laughs> Denzel Washington, sorry, history, I just, I had a history thought. Denzel Washington played Malcolm X. Malcolm X's uh, family moved from Nebraska to East Lansing when he was a kid. How about that? He was in How about that? Glory, too, wasn't he? He was in Glory, yes. Yeah. And Ohio had um, a football team called the Ohio Glory that played at Ohio Stadium. Oh, there you go. Well done. Um, okay, so let's actually talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, this is the sixth meeting between Ohio State and Notre Dame. Yep. The last three meetings have gone Ohio State's way, and and really, unless you're very old, these are the the only three that you probably remember. Uh, but they're interesting. So the series overall, I mean, I think the 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 urban legend. But what's the? I'm trying to think of the phrase. The the story, right, the scuttlebutt is that the reason why Ohio State never played Notre Dame in, like, the Woody Hayes era was because X, Y, and Z. I, I think there's, like, five reasons that people have offered up. But for whatever reason, they, the teams just have not met that often, even though they are regional powers within a very uh, close geographic, you know, proximity. So... I don't know. I, are you hyped for this game, even though we have played them kind of more often in recent years? I mean, you've got those two games in the 90s and the Fiesta Bowl, but are you still – does that matchup still have a certain allure for you, Michael? Well, it's been a decade. I, I'm kind of excited about it just because I I don't like them and I want to beat them. Yeah. And, right. and that has always been the case. You know, when I I went to school in the 90s and I, I was at the 95 game, which was amazing, by the way. Um, I bet. It was – you know, back then, Lou Holtz was leading that team, and they were very good. They were one of the teams to be in the country every year. And you just got – it's no different today, I mean, other than the fact that not as, as successful the last few years. But you never stop hearing about them, and you just want people to shut up. You know, they had their own network. Yeah. You know, basically they had NBC to themselves while everybody else was on, you know, ABC, CBS, and, you know, right. the, and the cable networks. And so every – week you're subjected to you flipping on the flipping through the the local channels and you're like freaking notre dame air force or notre dame purdue or you know and they're ubiquitous and that's i think familiarity breeds contempt 
and the fact that they were always good always uh, lent itself to to the hatred and you know I guess their fans would say jealousy but in, you know I think there's just a real relentlessness about the fact that they were just everywhere and in your face and on the magazine covers and and on the highlight packages and you just so, wanted them to okay. go away. I'm going to interrupt you real quick, but I, I got to tell you something, and this is interesting that you say that because I've thought the exact same thing, right? Like, I think people just have this Notre Dame fatigue sometimes that builds up because whenever Notre Dame is even kind of good, people love to talk about Notre Dame. Uh, and I, I will say, though, with Brian Kelly, I feel like that's been tempered somewhat. I mean, Charlie Weiss, the furor surrounding Charlie <laughs> Weiss in the first like couple seasons that he was coach was incredibly obnoxious for a guy who really hadn't accomplished anything yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would personally say that the, the college football world should be thanking Ohio state because of the way that they just smacked the crap out of Charlie Weiss in that, you know, in that Fiesta bowl, um, that, that glorious Fiesta bowl where Tom Brady, not Tom Brady, gosh, <laughs> Brady, Quinn. <laughs> Brady Quinn. Thank you. Uh, Brady Quinn just, you know, got sacked multiple times particularly by his future brother-in-law. Um, you know, just, it was a fun game because it really kind of blew up a little bit of that Notre Dame mystique that had been building up for the past couple seasons. I don't think that's the same way now, but what right. I will say, what I find it interesting is that those reasons that you just offered for why people kind of want to beat Notre Dame and kind of get sick of them, those are the same reasons that people offer up for wanting to beat Ohio State. Exactly. And Right, and, and so I think that's kind of interesting because, you're going to get a lot of, like, Notre Dame, Ohio State, who you root for? I don't know, Asteroid. Yeah. But, meteor, um, Meteor. <laughs> right. But I, as an Ohio State fan, I enjoy this matchup, and I, I want to beat Notre Dame for so many reasons. Uh, I went to a Catholic school where a lot of the kids who went to school with me were Notre Dame fans, simply by virtue of, you know, my high school being a Catholic high school and then Notre Dame being a Catholic it's college. It's a very southwestern Ohio thing to, to yeah, for, for people to is. be Notre Dame fans. Yeah, or Michigan fans, and it's really annoying. But, you know, I want this game because it's kind of a validation of my fandom. Yeah. And even though, yes, Ohio State has become just as ubiquitous as, as you know, Notre Dame has been in the past, uh, for me personally, I still get a lot of pleasure out of taking out uh, the legs from that that mystique that Notre Dame tries to build up every decade or so. Yeah, no, the funny thing was, like, halfway through that year, Charlie Weiss had been doing so well that they gave him this huge contract extension yeah. right in the middle of his first year. And, yeah. and and so then, you know, the end of the year comes, and Ohio State just pretty much beat him down. I mean, Ted, they had no answer for Ted Ginn Jr. at all. No. Um and and Troy Smith and those guys, it was it was really wonderful to dismantle them, and, and it could have been even worse. I think we had three turnovers in the game; otherwise, it would have been like just like an annihilation. And you know, then Charlie Weiss, people figured out he was all snake oil. You know, it was you know, his decided uh, advantage, his <laughs> tactical advantage that he supposedly had, ske yeah. schematic advantage. I forget the term term that was used, but it was, I think it was the decided. Decided schematic advantage. advantage. Yeah, it was it was all bluster, and there was no substance to it. Once people figured out, and he, what he didn't want to put in a lot of effort into recruiting, and and so he was just this blowhard that kind of had rode his way to, you know, pr you know, prominence uh, on Bill Belichick's coattails, really. Right. And it was so, fun to it was fun to beat them down. And it's it's I always say if Ohio State can get a matchup against if they can't get somebody that they haven't 
you know played much, then I like to see mm-hmm. them take down one of the one of the real blue blood programs. Like um, a couple of years ago, we got to play Clemson. It was, was kind of cool because we don't play Clemson very often. But if it can't be somebody like that, I don't I don't want it to be like just some some run of the mill team. I want it to be like one of the traditional powers or or somebody that you'd never see. Like uh, I think it would be really cool to just total Baylor. I think it would be great to just <laughs> annihilate. Baylor. It would be satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I, I, our Riles is a big old baby, and I would enjoy you know like making his life miserable, but maybe not as much as I would enjoy making Brian Kelly's life miserable yeah. because I really hate Brian Kelly. Um. So, last thing I want to ask you about about this game, because mm-hmm. we're going to get kind of the X's and O's in a little bit with Matt, but we've got some suspensions, we've got some injuries. Tommy Shutt, his foot is going to keep him out of the game. Yeah, that's, that's a shame. Uh, um, game. Yeah. Also rough is uh, Adolphus Washington, who is out, you know, because of his solicitation charge. Uh, come on, you know. Diesel, come on. Yeah, don't don't be selling door-to-door. That's, that's really just not <laughs> appropriate. Um, and then, you know, of course, there was the dust-up with Zeke, although that's not going to keep him out of the game. Maybe might be a slight distraction, although, God, I would hope not, because that is one of the stupidest, like... <laughs> and, and people are, are ragging on him for, like, forgetting to pay the fine, right? Like, I want to <laughs> tell you something. I'd forget, too. If somebody if somebody busts me for a four-mile-per-hour-over-the-speed-limit thing, and I'm, like, starting school, you know, I'm trying to get my materials ready for school, I'm working on, you know, like, a million other things, I'm not going to remember doing that. I'm not going to remember to do that. <laughs> Like it's entirely possible. Like I completely understand why you forgot. You and I have talked about such a minor piece of crap charge. (laughs) Yeah, you and I have talked about that offline, and it's like one of those things where there's there's two kinds of people, right? Like I would have gone, oh crap! The second I got it, I had taken care of it just to get it out of my plate, and 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 I would have rolled my eyes and thought about, okay, what's for dinner? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you would have like like let it go, and I'll worry about it later, and then never worried about it, and it didn't get taken care of. What my yeah. my my big thing here is that there's people at Ohio State that take that that track that stuff and sure. they remind yeah. you and they tell you, hey, did you take care of that or you know, and you know it's that's that's their job to do that and to make sure everything's is taken care of. And if they come up to you and say, hey, did you take care of that? And yeah, don't worry about it. You know, you make sure that you did take care of it and tell them not to worry about it. And yeah. I want to ask you this though: the the, the sure. whole driving without you know a suspended license and getting busted and that kind of thing. Yeah, do you think? Dumb. Do you think? I'm I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just throwing it out there, being devil's advocate. Do you think if this is <laughs> not saying, just saying, if this is a Michael Hill, for example, do you think it's a game suspension? No, I don't. I mean, I honestly like to me, this is really minor. This isn't. I mean, yeah, getting an accident, hydroplaning your car. Although I got to tell you something, that day that he got in a wreck, I'm lucky I didn't get in a wreck. I drove in that same, in those same conditions up here in Columbus. It was awful. It was really, really bad. I mean, you're talking about visibility of like 30 feet at some points. It, it was, it was really bad. So that I do not, you know, begrudge him for. I mean, that was that was some rough driving conditions. Uh, no, I don't think so because it's just. To me, it's a stupid mistake, but it's not one that I think should cost anybody a game. I mean, was he putting someone in danger by not having, like, by not paying it? No, like I don't think so. I mean, it, it was dumb, but the only thing that it does is that it hurts his driving record, and I don't think that's something that you really should be suspending. If he were driving like completely recklessly or something like that, then yeah, maybe. But 
I don't see that as the case. So no, that that's not something that bothers me at all. all right. And I don't think that somebody some something somebody else would get suspended for. Uh, before we get to ask us anything, though, I want to ask you one last thing about the Fiesta Bowl here. How do you think it's going to play out? I mean, you've got Will Fuller, right, who's one of the best wide receivers mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. You've got a pretty good uh, quarterback, you know, for Notre Dame. But you've also got a lot of injuries. You've got some other issues. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how each team tries to cover up their um, missing players. I yeah. think that's going to be the biggest thing. So how do you how do you think it plays out? Well, what I would do, and I don't know what the plan is, but I, what I would do is I would I would use the rush man package a lot, and yeah. and definitely move Bosa inside because you're you're going to have a strong player brought in for him, um, you know. But because Hubbard obviously is good. And Lewis, right. Lewis and is yeah. good, and that's a fair point. so you can put those guys on the end. You can put both in the middle, and then that can mitigate some of, of missing both Shut and Washington. Um, yeah. I think the guys that came on later in the year for Shut, I thought did a pretty good job. So I think that's not a problem. I think you, you definitely miss Diesel though, but if you put Bosa there, I think you can mitigate that. And it, to me, it all comes down to can they bother uh, Notre Dame with the pass rush? and not give Fuller time to get open deep because yeah. our safeties have kind of sometimes fallen asleep on deep patterns. Um, although our corners are very good, if you throw over them, you know, and, and there's no safety help, then then that could be a problem. So uh, I'm hoping that they don't give Kaiser a lot of time to throw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm really hoping that they can shut down the run because Procease is good, uh, a good player. And yeah, uh, he's, he is a good player. Uh, the one thing, though, that I would say, and this is in response to Bosa moving inside, I think it's really important that they get a decent pass rush. So I honestly would, like, ride or die with, like, Hill and whoever else they want to, like, insert in there on the inside and then say, all right, Hubbard and Bosa, like, go get them. Like, that's, like, we need pressure from the outside, in my opinion. Especially, I mean, I have confidence that the linebackers can plug up. Uh, any gaps, you know, in the defensive line, like if they're going to try to rush in the interior. That I'm not particularly worried about. I'm more worried about something on the edge getting loose or, uh, you know, Fuller just getting like a bunch of de- – like if you look at his stats, I mean, he's basically like Devin Smith. I mean, the, the dude just catches deep balls, and I want to try to limit that if at all possible. So I say put your best edge rushers, you know, on the outside – Go with what you got in the middle, and then just you know hope that that's disruptive enough in their passing game. I think it will be. I don't. Their offense is very, and you know it's it's. I don't. It's not mediocre. It's a good offense when it's yeah. firing, but it's it's it it's in fits and starts, and they're prone to turning the ball over occasionally. So I I don't. I'm not like super worried about it, but I do think that Ohio State needs to be able to do what they do well. Yeah to make sure that their game plan works out. And on the offensive side of the ball, like you need some kind of consistency, and, and there you just feed Zeke. Right. Right? Well, like, what I think here is, is that I think Ohio State will do as well as JT Barrett does in distributing the ball correctly. Right, exactly. Uh, yes. I think if JT can have a good good game distributing the ball, reading the defense right on the, on the, op, on the zone reads, and getting the ball out to the right receivers, I think Ohio State will be fine. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think that he needs to throw for 300 yards. I do think he needs to be able to distribute to guys like Curtis Samuel and Jalen Marshall and <gasps> Braxton Miller, maybe. And I want Braxton uh, to throw a pass down the field so bad. <laughs> I really, really do. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. One, don't know. one more for the for old dime's sake. I want to see it too, but I would cry myself to sleep even if we won by fifty. I would cry myself to sleep if he re-injured himself doing that. Uh, that would be the, the, one of the biggest tragedies that I can. I think would cry of. myself to sleep in a good way if he threw a touchdown pass to Michael Thomas. 
That's true. That would be pretty amazing. <laughs> um, all right, so let's do Ask Us Anything. Let's do it real quick. Okay. Uh, we only have a couple questions. You guys can't ask us anything by uh, sending us an email to dubcast at 11warriors.com or hitting us up on Twitter at 11dubcast. And let's start off with that Twitter question, Michael. What we got? All right, Mr. Andrew Hire. He wants to know, if ESPN screwed up last year's college football playoff announcement like Steve Harvey did with Miss Universe, how would OSU fans react? Like if OSU was originally announced as the fourth team and then they said five minutes later, whoops, we meant to say Baylor is number four. Uh, <laughs> how would Buckeye Nation handle that, Johnny? Uh, they would not well. <laughs> uh, first of all, there'd be a lot of cons- conspiracy theories, which would be really fun, I think. But second of all, I think it would just things would go to hell in a handbasket really quickly. Um, there would be riots. There would be much rioting. Yeah, I mean, pick any zombie movie you like. I, I think that's pretty much what the aftermath in Columbus would look yeah, like. Yeah, that would be the apocalypse. It, it would be a conflagration that would put to shame anything that's ever happened in Morgantown or East Lansing combined. Yeah, it'd be it'd be bad. It'd be real bad. Uh, okay, so Alvin has a question for us. Uh, our good friend Asian Chipmunk. Um, who stays in the Big Ten the longest, Urban Meyer, Mark D'Antonio, or Jim Harbaugh? P.S. I stole this question from our friend. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, like total length of time or from this point forward? I'm going to say total length of time. Cause see, no. Let's say total length so of time. So Urban's had four years already. Yeah. D'Antonio's been at Michigan State for five years? Maybe longer than that. Excuse- uh... I think maybe six or seven. I think, I think D'Antonio, and here's why. Okay. I think Urban's probably got a few more good years left in him, and I think he's going to want to call it quits. How how long do you? And maybe that's the real question here. How long do you think Urban Meyer's going to be at Ohio State? I, how much I am. More I mean, even if he goes five more years, ten years is a long time to be at yeah. school. So if he goes nine or ten years, let's say, well, D'Antonio only needs to go four or five more at Michigan State. Uh, I don't think Harbaugh is going to for the reason that I think Harbaugh will go back to the NFL at some point. I really expect yeah. him to do that. Um, I agree with that. He may give this a shot and, and give it a real shot for five, six years, but I think he's going to eventually go back to the NFL because the offers are going to be just ridiculous. Well, especially if he makes Michigan like really yeah, good. Yeah, especially if they get good. And the other thing, too, about D'Antonio is he doesn't – he's got Michigan State farther than – really they've ever been before they're in uncharted territory but i think that's the kind of place where if you won nine games people would be kind of generally happy with that so i think he can actually afford to have down years there and not worry about job security so that's why i think d'antonio will be around the longest when it's all said and done in terms of total years if you're talking from this point forward i don't i don't know that would be kind of close maybe yeah i don't know i mean i i think this is i think this is urban's last stop i don't think he's going to um, really look for another opportunity. I don't think he's ever going to the NFL or any of that. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think he's going to be a dude who coaches into his 70s. So I think Urban Meyer maybe has – I think he'll actually coach maybe a little longer than 10 total years here. I think he might go to like maybe 12 or 13, which would be great. Like I would love that. Yeah, that'd be great. But, you know, Mark D'Antoni is not an old dude. He's not even – you know, he's not even 60 yet. He's he's 59 years old. I think he's got at least another 10 years. And um, I mean, he'll coach for as long as he's able to coach at Michigan State. I mean, that's that's really the perfect place for him. And if he can have them contending for national titles, I, I mean, why would he leave? Right. I mean, the dude the dude will submit himself as the greatest Michigan State head coach of all time, and he's pretty damn near that already. Um, 
so yeah, I don't I don't see him leaving anytime soon. And I agree with you. I think that Harbaugh will probably peace out. Maybe I mean it's not going to be soon, but maybe after five or six years he'll he'll head back to the NFL if he gets a chance. You know, I caught so. some flack on on the site a little bit about saying that I didn't have anything but respect and that I liked Mark D'Antonio. Um, and I know you like Mark D'Antonio. I do. Um, yeah, but I guess I'm supposed to not like him because Michigan State's good, and they and supposedly yes. supposedly he but. hates Ohio State now, and he tells his players that. Like, what else are he going to tell his players? Oh, I love Ohio State. Be nice to them. He, well, he's mad because his, his <laughs> bro, you know, they did his bro dirty, and yeah, and they, you know. But you know, the other thing too is if you ever you know asked him about his time here, I mean, sure he would right. be very respectful and say all the right things because you know just, <laughs> we opened a lot of doors for him. By yeah. you know by employing him and and his his partnership with Tressel, I'm sure he wouldn't be where he is today if he hadn't coached under Tressel here. No, and and look, I just it, it's not that he is an Ohio State guy, and that's why I like him so much. I like him because he's a a really interesting coach in a lot of ways, yeah. and the things that he does, like his approach to the game, is very odd in a lot of ways. Like he does things that you wouldn't expect a guy who most people would perceive to be very traditional and like, okay, I'm playing old school football. He does some weird stuff. He'll throw in a bunch of weird trick plays and, and weird formations. And I enjoy watching that. And I also just like his demeanor. I think it's really funny. <laughs> just how grouchy <laughs> he is. curmudgeonly like, attitude. Yeah. And then, and then he'll break character sometimes and he'll bust out a laugh and make a really like, you know, sly subver- subversive, sub- can't even talk yeah. tonight. Subversive <laughs> joke. You know, we'll bust out the dab or something. I, I just, I think that's here's great. what I like so. about him. He is what I want from a coach from my team in that he makes his teams so damn hard to play, so tough yeah. and so just physical. And that's how I want my team to play all the time. And yeah. Ohio State is a tough physical team, but I mean, just sheer brutality of our games with Michigan State the last few years have been amazing. Well, and they always get up for the big games. I mean, Michigan State, they've had just as much success against Michigan as we have mm-hmm. in the past several years, and that's in no small part due to the way Mark D'Antonio gets them prepared for those games. And sometimes, even like we saw this year, even if you don't have the best game plan and maybe you don't deserve to win a game, <laughs> if you bust your butt until the last possible second, you have a chance to be right there. So if they go out against Alabama and they do something crazy, just like Ohio State did last year, you know, I'm going to be smiling. I think that's going to be great. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Yeah, and he's not like – he's just not one of those guys like Brian Kelly or, or you know, one of those – there's coaches that I've absolutely hated. I don't like sure. Burt Bielema at all. I don't like guys <laughs> like that. Tom Crean, I just like to punch him just as soon as look at him. But I don't yeah, I don't have that kind of feeling toward D'Antonio. I just have never no. looked at him and gone, oh, I hate that guy. No, uh, and i got to say something. Full disclosure, I mean, this isn't really – something I needed to disclose, but a friend of mine from high school married one of his nieces. And so I get all these pictures on my Facebook feed of like their wedding or like family, like get togethers. Uh And it's really hilarious because you see Mark D'Antonio and he's just like in a polo shirt, like grinning at a table or like dancing with somebody. And it's, 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 it's like seeing a vampire out of a coffin kind of and like just enjoying it. It's, it's really funny. And I enjoy that part of Mark D'Antonio. And, and so I thank my, my high school friend, Mark Skinner for marrying uh, one of his nieces. So, Good job, Mark. you know, I, I just enjoy the dude and so hopefully they're successful in the, the playoffs. Cause if you know, if you can't, can't beat a team. You want that team to be as successful as possible. Right. I mean, don't you want to say the only team that could have beat us was the team that won the national championship? Exactly. I do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And they led for exactly one play of the game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which they did several times. Mm. 
All right, so that's Ask Us Anything, and uh, yeah, we'll get back to him right after the Fiesta Bowl. Joining us tonight, we are lucky to have Matt, Matt Mac Finkus for Finkus on Football. We're going to talk a little Fiesta Bowl, Notre Dame. Uh, how are you doing, Matt? I'm great, guys. How about you? Awesome. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm still I'm still working over this uh, kind of Christmas hangover a little bit. I'm trying sure, to trying to get back in. Yeah. Um. First thing I want to ask you. So Notre Dame, obviously, this is this is going to be kind of an interesting matchup because you've got. A guy in Brian Kelly, who I think most people acknowledge is a pretty good offensive coach, um, but you're also dealing on Notre Dame with a lot of injuries, some suspensions, it's kind of dealing with the same thing in Ohio State. How do you think the missing players on both teams will alter how the game plays out? Notre Dame runs the ball very, very effectively. Yes, they've got a good quarterback that can throw the ball very well. The receivers are very talented. They get the ball down the field. They run the ball out of that spread. Uh, very, very effectively, and I think that's going to be the big challenge for Ohio State is how that defensive line is going to be able to be cobbled together and, uh, and, and what they're going to be able to do uh, as far as playing against uh, that Notre Dame running So, Matt, the the Notre Dame team, they, they've got a really great wide receiver. I'm just kind of interested to see what you think Ohio State's going to be able to do. Are they going to roll coverage, or, or are they going to put one guy on him? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that they'll probably match up the way that they have. I think they trust in their system. They believe in their guys. Uh, you know, Gary and Conley's had a pretty good year. Eli Apple's had a pretty good year as far as uh, being a cover corner. So I think that they'll probably just stick with kind of the the the, the system, so to speak. I, I I don't see them really trying to make big adjustments to, to shut down one wide receiver for, for Notre Dame because they do have other weapons available. And the guys that they have, I mean, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the level of both these teams for a long time. But Ohio State, from top to bottom, is still one of the most talented football teams in the, in the country. And I think that they can line up and play with just about everybody. And I don't think that they're going to try to uh, really you know, change the coverage. What I do think that they're going to do, though, is I think you're going to see a lot of pressure out of this football team defensively. I think you're going to see them trying to get the, uh, you know, pressure on the quarterback, trying to make him make quick throws, quick decisions. Notre Dame really likes to stretch the ball vertically if they can, and if Ohio State can get to him and force early throws, I think that'll be the difference. So here's the other thing that I was kind of curious about. You know, some people would say that maybe Ohio State will not be as motivated because this is not a playoff game. I think maybe to an extent that could be disproven by the way they played against Michigan. But do you think Urban Meyer uh, is going to have to come up with maybe kind of a creative way to motivate the team, or do you think they're just going to want to go out on a high note, especially with all the juniors and seniors who will be leaving the, at the end of this year? Okay, that to me is the most intriguing uh, thing about this game, is how this team is going to show up and play. Because if you look back at this season, with all the fanfare, with all the talent, with everything that they had going for them, with everyone writing them in to the finals again and, and, and being repeat champions, they've only shown up. Uh, really shown up to play in two or three games all year long. And, and so now we're expecting them to be able to show up again. And there's a lot of other different factors going on. you got guys that are, that are thinking about the NFL. Uh, yes, they're not in the, in the college football playoffs, and, and this is not the opponent that they wanted to be playing. This is not the end goal for this team that they wanted to have. So to me, this is the biggest factor. I mean, yes, there's matchups. Yes, there's injuries. There's all kinds of different things. There's two very storied programs going at it. But this is one of the most, uh, you know, talented Ohio State football teams. And I know we talked before the Michigan game about the 
just the trap that this team might fall in if they lost to Michigan, that this might be the most lauded football team to underachieve in, in, in college football history. And now you're going into another game here where there's a ton of excuses to be made. And I, I think that Urban Meyer has his absolute work cut out for them, keeping this team motivated and getting them ready to play here because there's every reason in the world that they don't show up for this game and, and at the Fiesta Bowl. I, I hope that that's not true. I hope that they show up and I hope that they play for pride and play for the senior class. But, man, there's a lot of just reasons to look at that they don't show up here. And, and I think we'll be able to tell right away whether the team is ready to go or not. Matt, what do you see as the big uh, matchup in terms of unit versus unit between these two teams? Where's the game going to be won and lost? I think it's going to be, you know, and, and this is cliche, but it, but it always is with Ohio State and Notre Dame. It's offensive line and defensive line on both sides of the football. Uh, there's a lot of great skill positions on both sides, but, you know, both these teams rely heavily on the running game and, and how well that works for them. And so I, I think that, you know, the, the Notre Dame offensive line and how, how they match up, uh, how they adjust and how the Ohio State defensive line adjusts to the injuries, the extension of the Dolphins, Washington, and rolling these guys in and how they play the run is going to be a big factor. And then, again, the matchup on just getting the ball out, is can you get pressure with a four-man rush and get the ball out on, a, on, on a rhythm and on time for these guys and not let uh, the Notre Dame sit in the pocket and try to force the ball down the field. And on the same time, same time you know, Ezekiel Elliott has been the workhorse for this team all year long. Can Ohio State's offensive line show up against a very good Notre Dame front seven, I think ranked top 20 in the country nationally against the run and be able to run the ball effectively again. So let me ask you this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you uh, played against Notre Dame uh, in your career at Ohio State, correct? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. So, right. Nine, me, right. Right. So given that that's such a – it's a huge game, I think, because of the regional rivalry, but it's also a big game because of the – fact that we've only played Notre Dame, I think it's the sixth time coming up. Um, was there anything that, like, was that a factor? Was was that kind of significance uh, of that game uh, something that entered in your guys' thought process, or was it something that the coaches brought up? Was that was that made to be a bigger thing than uh, any other game that you might have out of conference? You know, I, I think it probably was back in 95 and 96 more so than it is today, just because uh, – before 95 and 96, the last time Ohio State played was 1931 and 32, I think, or maybe 35. And, I mean, it was in the 30s. Right. Yeah. But it, it had been 60 years since Ohio State and Notre Dame had played. I mean, and again, you're talking about two of the most storied programs in college football history. Uh, you know, I think we played as recently as 2005. Uh, and, and so maybe that has gone a little bit from, from the mystique of it. But yeah, in 95 and 96, those were some special games just because of where Notre Dame was at, obviously, at the time, you know, they were coming off the national championship in, I think, 91, maybe, uh, ranked in the top four or five both years that we played them in 95 and 96. And, again, we hadn't played in, in, you know, 60 years. I mean, you're talking about two schools who are, you know, arguably the top five, actually not arguably, they are the top, in the top five whenever you want to talk about them in college football, mm-hmm. as far as fan base, as far as, you know, program history. And they hadn't played, you know, they're, they're a couple hundred miles apart and they hadn't played in 60 years. So it was something that was really extraordinary in 95 and 96. I don't know if it's that mystique, you know, level that we have here today just because of the recent interactions. But anytime you have two of these programs getting together, I mean, you know, when Ohio State plays Oklahoma this year, it's going to be the same kind of thing. When you get these, these uh, you know, blue bloods of college football together to play, it's always a special occasion. 
So one of the other things that I want to ask you about kind of was about the, the players themselves. I mean, it's interesting to me all the talk surrounding the juniors and, and the other potential players who might leave early. Who do you think of that group might have the best game? I mean, I think naturally most people might say Ezekiel Elliott, but do you think any of the other players might really step out and like have a really crazy game to finish their careers at Ohio State? You know, I think the guy that, that I look to as far as that junior class who, who's going to really step up, uh, I mean, there's, there's two guys, but, but I think if you look at guys who, um, and, and one in particular, I mean, Joey Bosa's known he's been going all year long. I mean, the, the guy is a number right. one or number, you know, top three draft pick. He's known he's a top three draft pick. He's not done the Jadavian clowning. He's played his butt off all year long. He's produced all year long, and, and he's fought, and he's played really, really hard all year long. I expect him to do no different, you know, on, on Friday versus Notre Dame. And Zeke, you know, I think Zeke didn't know at the beginning of the season he was going to go, but probably midway, you know, he knew he was going to leave and he's still producing, still putting up those numbers. I think those two guys, when you look at what, what, what their talent level is, uh, you know, it, they both know that they're going to go and they both have been playing really well. But Joey Bosa for me, you know, that, that's a guy who knew coming into the season. He knew in spring that he was going to be in the NFL the following right. year, and he has shown up every single game and played his butt off and worked his butt off every single game to show up and play. So last thing I want to ask you, uh, one of, I think, the biggest issues in those games where maybe Ohio State has played a little lackluster is getting the offense going. So given the personnel that is on the field, you know, you're Ed Warner, you're calling the, you're calling the plays, how do you attack the Notre Dame defense to make sure that Ohio State starts off on the right foot? You know, I, I think that you attack on – and when I say the perimeter, I mean just outside the tackle. I, I don't mean like trying to run, you know, east and west. But I think right. what Ohio State does really well and where they match up so well with other people is their ability to, to work from tackle to tackle to numbers. And what they're able to do there as far as running the football and working on, you know, getting players in the flat, you know, whether it's Michael Thomas and getting a quick plan or a quick hit, or whether it's Zeke, you know, catching the ball in the flat. I think there's a lot, a lot of potential there for those guys to work that area from the tackle box to the number. That is Ohio State bread and butter. It's maybe not straight up the gut. It's not outside the number. But that tackle box is the number. If I'm Ed Warner, I'm calling the plays that are really going to excel there because I think that's where Ohio State is concerned. All right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I, I hope that they, they put that plan into full effect and that we can see the positive results of that on uh, on the first. Sounds good, guys. Have a good one, and uh, hopefully we'll bring back a win from the desert. Happy New Year, Matt. That's right. <laughs> All right. Happy New Year, guys. Talk to you soon. All right, joining us tonight, we are really, really happy to have on uh, Jack Park, a commentator for 97.1 The Fan. He writes for this dispatch occasionally, but you guys probably mostly know him as an author, uh, especially as the uh, the preeminent uh, Buckeye historian, and we're really glad to have you on. Thank you so much, man. Well, Johnny and Michael, it's great to be with you, and particularly this time of the year here. What is it? Yes. The 29th of uh, December here, and as we're yeah. talking, and uh, we're three days away from uh, – a pretty big bowl game between two of the biggest names in college football history, so it's it's great for me to have the opportunity to be with you, absolutely. Well, let me tell you something. So I'm really glad you started off by saying that because they are two of the biggest names in college football history. And the first question that I wanted to ask you, and this is something that has been on my mind a lot, so I'm like really excited that I get to, I get to talk to you about it. Um, one of the common, I think, stories behind – 
maybe the reason why Ohio State and Notre Dame have not played each other as many times as you expect these two kind of regional, you know, close regional football powerhouses to have done so is that Woody Hayes is supposed to have not wanted, uh, for some reason, you know, for whatever reason, uh, to play Notre Dame. And I can you elaborate on that? Why was that not a rivalry that was developed traditionally, especially yeah, uh, in the 1950s I, and 60s? Yeah, and uh, well, basically, I would say, Johnny, that's uh, that's probably pretty accurate because that's what I've heard. I obviously never had an opportunity to ask Coach Hayes about that, and if I had, sure. I probably would not have asked her question anyway. But uh, <laughs> that that, uh, that was fairly general knowledge when he was coach. That he just didn't want to play Notre Dame, and there maybe are some other schools that he didn't want to play so much. Uh, although he did play some fairly major non-conference games over the years, Penn State. You know, Woody Hayes uh, lost to Penn State four times in Ohio Stadium. And right. he only beat them once in Ohio Stadium. He was 1-4 and four against Penn State. And that, of course, was back when Penn State was a uh, uh, was a, was a non-conference team. I mean, they didn't join the Big Ten until 1993. They were well coached in those years by Rip Ingle and Joe Paterno. Uh, he had some games with um, uh, some of the West Coast teams, Southern Cal, UCLA. Washington was pretty strong back in some of those years. And uh, so he did play some major uh, non-conference games and everything, but uh, not as many as I think some of the fans would have liked and everything like that. One thing about Coach Hayes, we probably lost more non-conference games than we should have because he truly concentrated on the Big Ten schedule. It seems like back at that time, winning the Big Ten was a little bit bigger thing than it is today. Today, the big thing is winning the national title. But back then, it was winning the Big Ten so that you could go to the Rose Bowl. And Coach Hayes, without question, really concentrated on the Big Ten games and wanted to always win the uh, conference. And, and he did pretty well in his 28 years. Of course, we won 13 Big Ten titles, so he was pretty successful at that. But uh, your, your comment about him not in, wanting to play Notre Dame, from everything I've heard, it's, it's pretty accurate. You know, Jack, uh, this would be the, the sixth meeting between the, the schools, and Ohio State's won the last three. Uh, but I was recently reading uh, about the, the first two meetings. In fact, I did a little bit yes. of a column about that. And, and the first two meetings that, that Notre Dame won narrowly uh, were both decided by, uh, in, in a way, they were decided by arcane rules that don't exist anymore, um, one being the, the, uh, the last player to touch the ball before it goes out of bounds. Uh, yeah. got, got possession, and that gave Notre Dame a chance to to win the first meeting. And then the the second one was about uh, incompletions in the end zone, uh, creating right. a touchback situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. What other? Uh, I mean, those are some pretty some pretty interesting rules. Uh, what uh, What do you know about those early meetings with Notre Dame Fighting Irish? Well, and then there was another rule. Those two are very prominent. In fact, you mentioned uh, if there was a fumble and the ball went out of bounds. Uh, it was not awarded necessarily to the last team that had possession. It was awarded to the last team that touched the ball. Right. And after Ohio State, Ohio State took a 13 to nothing lead in that 1935 game. And by the way, fellas, that 1935 game between Ohio State and, and Notre Dame was selected the most outstanding game in the first 100 years of college football. That was 
by mm. a, a you know a national poll of sportscasters and sports writers in 1969. 1969, of course, being the uh, the 100th anniversary of the Rutgers Princeton game, the first game back in 1869. But that mm-hmm. 1935 game was selected as that, and the Buckeyes went up 13 to nothing at halftime and should have been ahead probably 20, if not 27 to nothing. And uh, Notre Dame came back very very strong. And one rule that really affected the outcome of the game is uh, we're up 13 to nothing, and Notre Dame gets two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and they miss both extra points. So we're still ahead 13 to 12. And then on our next possession, after Notre Dame scored a second touchdown, we fumble the ball. We ran a play, to, a wide play around Dan, why they ran that play rather than just run up to the middle, but they did. They ran a play like that. The ball was fumbled. And a center for Notre Dame by the name of Harry Wojman supposedly brushed the ball before it went out of bounds, and they wore, awarded possession to Notre Dame, and Notre Dame came back down, and I believe it was 29 or 30 seconds on the clock, uh, a pass from a tailback by the name of Bill Shakespeare to an end of the name of Wayne Milner. And uh, they scored their third touchdown, and they missed the third extra point. Of course, it didn't make any difference, and that's how they won the game 18-14. to 14. But there was another rule back at that time that really affected the outcome of the game, and we knew the rule, but yet uh, we did it anyway, and that was when a player came out of a game, that player could not go back into the game until the next quarter. Right. So if you came out in the second quarter, of course, you couldn't go back in until the second half, the third quarter. If you came out of that game in the fourth quarter, of course, you were done for the day. And at one point early in the fourth quarter, Ohio State was up 13 to nothing, and Coach Francis Schmidt, who didn't make a lot of mistakes, he didn't. He was really an excellent coach, but he made a real bad series of mistakes early in that fourth quarter. He started pulling his regulars. They played the entire game. They were tired. He put in some fresh second-teamers, and the second-teamers obviously were not as good as the first-teamers, mm-hmm. and this is when Notre Dame started that rally. And all of a sudden now, he can't get his regulars back into the game because they're done for the afternoon. And I think that also had, you know, played a big uh, role in the, in the outcome of the game and with Notre Dame winning that game 18-13. to So one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, is kind of related to that. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s. I'm 30. I was born in 1985. And, and my experience with, you know, these Notre Dame games are mostly – Eddie George, and then, you know, the, the Fiesta Bowl. Um, yes. My question to you would be, what are some of, like, the unsung performances, like the, the people, you know, the athletes who have done some really amazing things in those games that maybe because they took place farther away that people don't really know about so much? Well, I think probably uh, if you go back to the 1935 game, when we went up 13 to nothing, uh, there was a guy by the name of Frank Bowser that was really, really a good halfback back at that time, and he scored one of the touchdowns. And then uh, another guy by the name of Joe Williams, he was out of Akron, Ohio. They called him Jumpin' Joe Williams. And those are two names you probably don't hear too much about today, but they were really, really good football players. Uh, Stan Pinsur was the quarterback, uh, the starting quarterback back in 1935. And then he, there was another quarterback that played quite a bit by the name of Tippy Dye. And Tippy hmm. went into an athletic administration uh, many, many years. In fact, he was Ohio State's head basketball coach, oh, in the late 1940s and everything. And he was actually the guy, Tippy Dye, that was one of the quarterbacks in those games, is a guy that really uh, was planted the seed that started Nebraska football, what it is today. He hired a guy by the name of Bob Devaney. 
And when he was athletic director out at, the, at, at Nebraska, for that matter, and before Tippy got there, I think Nebraska had about three winning football seasons in its last 20 years. So Tippy became quite an athletic administrator after there. He's probably known for that more than he was maybe as a football player. He was pretty good and everything there. Uh, 36, pretty much the same guys, pretty much the same guys. Some of those guys had graduated and everything. The, the 36 game over at South Bend was played in a, a downpour of rain, and they won that game 7-2. to two. And, the, you know, the weather, as I've always studied that game, the weather had quite an impact on the, reducing the scoring and everything like that. But uh, I think the, uh, probably some of the other reasons then, back in 1935, there was no television of the games. There was no wall-to-war sports. There was hmm. no 11 Warriors uh, like you guys are doing to, <laughs> to help promote everything like that. And uh, right. so some of the names, just, you know, they, just, uh, uh, they just weren't as well-known. You know, Jack, a, a lot of people have said uh, because of the loss to Michigan State that this is perhaps one of the most talented teams that will not have an opportunity to win the national championship. But I know Ohio State teams in the past have had very talented teams that uh, that haven't uh, been able to get that championship, that elusive championship. There were some yep. teams in the 90s and all, obviously in the mid-70s. Which teams yep. do you think were the most talented that didn't quite get it done for Ohio State? I would say probably the 1969 team, the, the team that uh, uh, that was uh, the of course the year after the super sophomores of '68. As a lot of long-term, long-time Buckeye fans are aware, uh, the Buckeyes won the outright uh, national title, uh, 10 and 0, with a, a team dominated mostly by sophomores in 1968. The names of Rex Kern and Larry Zelina and Jack Tatum and Jim Stillwagen and Jan White and just goes on and on. Timmy Anderson, uh, probably the, at that time, of course, freshmen could not play eligible, uh, could not play uh, varsity competition because they were not eligible. They had a freshman team for many, many years. And when those guys came in as freshmen in 1967 and formed that freshman team, by the middle of that 67 football season, the varsity could not beat the freshman team. <laughs> I mean, I've talked to a lot of guys that were on that 67 team and said, hey, if we're playing Indiana or Northwestern on Saturday, we got a tougher game on Tuesday and Wednesday night scrimming against our own freshmen than we do playing Indiana. And so that team became the super sophomores of 68. Coach Hayes started as many as 16 different sophomores, one or more games in 1968. Now, they were better in 69. I'm thoroughly convinced they were better in 69 than they were. Uh, we went to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, for the for the uh, the of course for the Michigan game in Bo Schembechler's first season, we had a 22 game winning streak. The closest anybody had come to Ohio State that year was Minnesota, and we beat Minnesota by 27 points. That's as close as anybody had came. In fact, fellas, that 69 team had never been behind until they went to Michigan. They had never been behind that season. And we go up there and we lose that game 24-12. Uh, to 12. Now, a lot of things went into that, mainly the leadership change that happened at the University of Michigan. Had Bo not been the new coach there, I, I don't think that game would ever have happened in a million years. But they changed leadership, and it's a great example in, in life and in business and everything else when you have great leadership at the top of an organization, what it can do almost immediately. And I would still say that 69 team could probably, uh, if you can compare them with the 35 team and – Chick Hartley's 1916 team, and, of course, uh, a couple of John Cooper's teams, 96 and 98. Uh, I'd put that 1969 team up there with any of them. And if I had to pick a team as the greatest Ohio State team of all time not to win the national title, I would pick 1969. 
Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people would agree with you because that's that's an unbelievable stat. I did not know that they had not even trailed at any point in the season no, until then. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. We opened up that game with a with a uh, sixty nine to nothing uh, win over a TCU team that was a pretty good team. I forget their record, but I think they finished uh, something like six and four that year. And I'll never forget. We took the opening kickoff and moved it down to about the forty yard line, our own forty yard line, and on first down, first down of the season. Rex Kern connects with Bruce Jankowski for a 60-yard touchdown. <laughs> and we were offside. We were offside. They had to run it again. So he goes back, and on this next play, he connects with him for a 65-yard touchdown. <laughs> I mean, and that's just the way the season went. That's just the way the season went. Right. They were just so good. And John Brockington, of course, had, had moved into the fullback spot at uh, Jim Otis. No, I'm sorry. Jim Otis in 1969 was still uh, the fullback, and John Brockington was used a lot at right halfback. Uh, there sometimes not as much as he was the year before, but he sometimes would use him at the not right halfback. I'm sorry, but left halfback because he wanted to get both of them into the game at the same time. But uh, they had a year of experience and everything like that. And uh, you know, uh, I would still say Jack Tatum is probably the best defender Ohio State ever had. I would I would say he's the number one defender in Ohio State football history. So let me ask you this, and this is, you know, again, coming from somebody who's, you know, 30 years old, and a lot of people my age, I think, maybe do not quite get the significance of Notre Dame and, and why, you know, where, whether, where, sorry, where their position is in college football history. Can you explain a little bit about Notre Dame's overall contributions sure. to the sport? Sure. I, I think, again, you go to leadership at the top. Uh, they uh, Notre Dame really, really came on and became kind of America's team for a while there because of Newt Rockney. Rockney became head coach in 1918. Uh, Rockney had kind of an unusual uh, lifehood, so to speak. He was 22 years old before he went to college. And uh, he didn't have a high school diploma. He took what today, I guess I've always called it, maybe the equivalent of the GED. And obviously getting into a college even uh, uh, you know, back then was, was not nearly as difficult as it is today. But he was able to get in. He had no money much. And he uh, waited tables in the dormitories and did things like that and worked his way through school. But graduated from Notre Dame with honors in chemistry. So he was a brilliant man. He became a really, really good football player, went into coaching. And was an assistant coach then from 1913 through 1917, and then became head coach in 1918. Here's an interesting fact with the with Newt Rockney, for that matter. Uh, fellas, the very first game Newt Rockney coached as head coach in Notre Dame was in Cleveland, Ohio, and it was against Case uh, Institute of Technology. Back that's long before Case Institute of Technology and and Western Reserve got merged together. You know, it's what we know today as Case Western Reserve. Mm -hmm. And they right. played that game out at Old League Park. But here's an interesting fact. You, uh, Notre Dame won that first game under Rockney 26-6. to The second and the third touchdowns uh, for Notre Dame that afternoon were scored, were, uh, scored by uh, George Gipp. And I think most hmm. people familiar with sports are familiar with the Gipper story. Do you know right. who scored the very first touchdown for a Newt Rockney coach team at Notre Dame? I do not. Curly Lambeau. Huh. Who, who, who was from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Right. And then after Notre Dame went back and uh, took a job with the Indian Packing Company and, and formed a semi-professional team and – of course, Curley's been gone a long time now, and we still know his team is the Green Bay Packers. That's a guy. Sure. It's just a little interesting uh, trivia fact there, fellas. 
But anyway, Rockney was a guy that really put Notre Dame on the map. Uh, he had a great personality. Uh, he took them nationwide. He took them into the Deep South to play Georgia Tech at the time that the Ku Klux Klan was really, really strong down there, and he was maybe warned not to do that. Uh, he's the one that initiated the uh, the Southern Cal Notre Dame series, and uh, that was started in 1926, and they played every year Southern Cal and Notre Dame have, except I think it's either two or three years during World War II where they really couldn't play because of transportation. So Notre Dame really got its name then. Uh, Rockney, unfortunately, who died at the age of 43 in, uh, on March 31st of 1931 in a plane crash. But today he is still the winningest coach in uh, in college football history when you look at winning by percentage. And to qualify for that, you have to have coached 10 or more years. Coach Rockney coached 13 years there. They only lost 12 uh, games in his 13 years. And he wow. has slightly more than an 88% percentage. One of his star players was Frank Leahy. And Leahy, of course, had so many national championships at Notre Dame in the 1940s and Heisman Trophy winners. And Leahy today has the second highest winning percentage of any coach in college football history that's coached 10 or more years. Now, do you know who's had the third, who has the third highest of any coach that's coached uh, 10 or more years? Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so a lot of that Notre Dame mystique, so to speak, and it really wasn't mystique, it was genuine quality football, uh, goes back to the days of Newt Rockney and, of course, Frank Leahy. Era Parsegian had a great run uh, in the 1960s, of course, uh, and then Lou Holtz, of course, had great teams there. Lou was there 11 years, had a national title team, and Dan Devine did pretty well, too. Since Lou has left, they've made some coaching decisions there that didn't work out quite as well. Uh, uh, I think probably most recently the Charlie Weiss situation and the uh, Tyra uh, – what was his name? Tyrone Willingham, was it? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yep. Was it Tyrone Willingham? Uh, those didn't work out too well at all. And even Bob Davey, I think, was probably maybe, from the Notre Dame standpoint, a little bit of a disappointment there. But I think Brian Kelly now is probably uh, uh, is getting Notre Dame back to where they were a little bit. But uh, no, the Notre Dame in the last uh, 20 years hasn't been what it was at one time. But uh, it still is a, is a great, great uh, name. And uh, I'm sure uh, those gold, uh, you know, the golden helmets will come out on that field uh, uh, Friday afternoon, and Ohio State will, you know, uh, be up against one of the great, great, great traditional teams of all time. Yeah, not only some of these, uh, some of these younger listeners don't know a whole lot about Notre Dame, but you know, when I was a kid, the, you know, the Fiesta Bowl wasn't a major bowl like it is today. No. Uh, right. When did that really come into prominence uh, as a bowl game? Well, I think probably I think the first Fiesta Bowl was played about back about 1976. I think I'm right on this. And actually, uh, Arizona State, the local team there, uh, won that game. Uh, I think I'm right on the year on this, and I think it was the first one. If it wasn't the first one, it was one of the first two or three. They beat an undefeated Nebraska team. Their coach at that time was a guy by the name of Frank Cush, uh, who had grown up in a coal mining town over here in western Pennsylvania. And Frank Cush had played football at Michigan State. Uh, back in the early 50s under Biggie Munn. And Biggie, of course, was a coach that, that brought Michigan State into the Big Ten back in 1953. And Koosh was just a really a tough, a tough coach, a good coach, but he was really a throwback to the old days of power football. And it was his son 
that kicked the field goal late in that game that I think uh, Arizona State won that game, if not by one point, it was by two points. It was really a thrilling game, and I think that was the first Fiesta Bowl back about 1976. So it's been around about 40 years. I think it gained a lot of prominence, though, when uh, we went to the BCS system, and it became one of those bowls. And, of course, uh, you know, if you're an Ohio State fan, you got to always have a soft spot in your heart right. for the Fiesta Bowl at the end of that 2002 season. Because mm-hmm. uh, up until maybe the last season, I would always say, and I might still say, I don't know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it, but that double overtime win over Miami there in Jim Trestle's second year when we were 13-point underdogs and were told we shouldn't even be in the game, that's got to be uh, maybe the greatest win in Ohio State football history. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, the Kansas State and the Notre Dame. And Fiesta Bowl has treated, I think, Ohio State fairly well for the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, and it was just 10 years ago, of course, we played Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. We beat Kansas State there. We had a horrible game against Penn State at the end of the 1980 season. And that, of course, was before Penn State came into the Big Ten and probably wasn't even thought of for the Big Ten at that time. But uh, uh, Joe Paterno's team beat our uh, Earl Bruce's 1980 team pretty badly out there in that Fiesta Bowl uh, at the end of that 1980 season. Well, hopefully this year we have a much better turnout than that, and hopefully the you know the, the streak against Notre Dame continues. Um, Jack Park, thank you so much for coming on. That was really great, and we really appreciate your insight. Hey, my pleasure, guys. I hope you do well and everything. Let's bring home a, a victory on uh, Friday, of course. But Johnny and Michael, good luck to you. Uh, wish you a lot of success, and feel free to call me anytime. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Go Bucks. Go Bucks. Great talking to you too, man. Take care. And that is the 11 Dubcast to preview your Fiesta Bowl. Fiesta! Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, here on Taco Tuesdays. Um so I'd like to thank Jack Park for coming on, obviously, and dropping all his knowledge. Matt Finkus for dropping all his knowledge. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for you know wading through our Christmas vacation to get to this festival preview, yeah. which so many of you insisted that we like. Where's the Dubcast? Um, which I'm that that's great. I love that. I I, I want to hear that because that means that we're we're doing things right. So uh, thanks to all the guys for coming on, Michael. I have a final question to ask you. Sure, man. As is or won't. Um, so we've got a lot of Big Ten football games coming up. I mean, we've kind of played some of the the first couple ones. We had some upsets. I mean, Nebraska didn't see that coming at all. Uh, but of the remaining games, okay, of the remaining Big Ten football games yeah. that are not Ohio State yes. related, uh, which ones are you looking forward to the most? Really looking forward to Michigan State, Alabama. Right. Okay. Uh, I want to see Iowa Stanford. I, I'm really looking forward to that as well. I mean, I just think those are going to be two incredibly tough, physical, old time football games with a lot of you know smashing into the line and right. uh, seeing which team you know is the is the bigger, badder, stronger team. I, I think those are going to be good matchups, and um, hopefully the Big Ten can have a good showing. I'm not like one of those, uh, you know solidarity league solidarity guys where we have to prove that we're as good as the sec i mean i would yeah. I, I would like everyone to shut up about the sec so i do root against them no matter who they're playing but um uh yeah it's just it's interesting i want to see you know what these uh big 10 coach of the year types are going to do you know the the d'antonio's and the the ferences in, in their in their big game on the big stage i mean can can the big 10 have two years in a row where they just kind of clobber and beat up on everybody it'd be it'd be interesting to see and i also think that indiana got screwed the other day i think that field goal was good 
<laughs> a lot of people, you know, a lot of people agree with that. A lot of people thought that was uh, that was going to be, um, you know, that big Indiana win. Uh, I think Ramsey was actually at that game. Yeah. And he does not he does not believe that they were screwed. He believes that Indiana screwed themselves over, which... Well, yeah, they, 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 they Indiana'd quite a bit in that game, but, uh, but they still had a chance to tie that. In that. And I just don't get why that was called no good, because it looked good from every angle I saw. Yeah. You know what? So here's what I'm really excited about. I want to see how Michigan plays against Florida. I think that's going to be really interesting in the Citrus Bowl because mm-hmm. Florida is a very good defensive team. Really good uh, defensively, yeah. What they've been able to do this year is really crazy. On the other hand, they're not great offensively. And Michigan's kind of – Michigan's really iffy on both. Like, they've had some instances where they've been amazing uh, in terms of, like, for instance, their rush defense. And then, of course, then they play Ohio State and yeah. they get that – completely mangled uh and then sometimes their offense uh especially with their their passing game has looked really great with Rudock mm-hmm. and jake button there you know so there's i think there's a lot of cool matchups there i think that's gonna be a really fun game to watch i'm also interested i'm kind of low-key interested <laughs> because they're my spirit animal uh in the northwestern versus tennessee game i think northwestern is going to come out like gangbusters in that game and i i think that's going to be a game that's going to shock some people not necessarily because Tennessee is that great, but just because I think Northwestern is going to kick the crap. Has out Northwestern of them. ever come out as gangbusters? No, <laughs> but I got to think something. I think I think this year they are going to be they're going to be really scary. And I know Tennessee is up; they're the big favorites. But I don't SEC feeling, man. I got a feeling. <laughs> you know, I would be at that uh, that Michigan Florida game. I think it's going to be like a nine six game. I don't even know which team will win, but. Um, that yeah, game, right. if that game wasn't also at one o'clock on New Year's Day, I would probably go there because my daughter is in the Florida marching band. Oh, awesome! Be on well, there the you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's obviously you know we can talk about. I think, <laughs> I think uh, depending on how the outcome of the game is, we can spend an inordinate amount of time in the next dubcast complaining about scheduling and and how stupid it is that they like seemingly schedule every single Big Ten game on the first at one o'clock. But, yeah. um. Yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll get into that. But until then, uh, we'll be anxiously awaiting the outcome of the Fiesta Bowl. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm Johnny Ginner. I am Michael Citro. See you guys next time. Happy New Year.